You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and today I'm joined by our senior pastor, Bobby Harrell. And together, we are going to start a brand new podcast series over the Apostles' Creed that models and mimics the content that we're giving every single Sunday here in person at Cornerstone. As always, one of our very favorite parts of doing this podcast is that we get to engage with our listeners in a really incredible way and allow you to become part of the conversation. So as you listen, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, if you could text those to 817-809-3040, we'll take all the very best and most applicable questions and we'll respond to them as we can throughout our upcoming episodes. As we get started into this brand new series, what I really want to do is start with a reading of the Apostles' Creed. This is a statement of faith that has been used for generations, and I can't wait for it to outline our upcoming study. The Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, Jeremy, you just read the Apostles' Creed. As we were preparing for this series, one of the things that we spent a lot of time on was looking at all the different versions of the oh, Apostles' man, there's Creed. there's so many. It's insane when you look online and, you, and here's all two, the variables. I'll give you a couple of notable things about that. One, there are so many because it is a consistent creed across Christianity for 2,000 years. That's a long time. So it's yeah. had a long time to be used. Sure. And for those who are wondering about the variant readings that are out there, when you lay, the Methodists have, I think, two versions in the Methodist hymnal. The Anglican Church has two versions. I did not research if the Catholic Church had multiple versions, but I'm sure there's multiple readings there as right. well, or the Lutherans or the Presbyterians. But as we were looking across all the versions, what we really discovered is there's only just a few words that have been modernized for clarity's sake. Yeah. And the most controversial of those being, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church, which we can talk about in a few minutes. Yeah, that, and then also the line, he descended, descended to, to the, the grave dead, or to, the dead to or, hell, or to hell. In some, some versions, yeah. yeah. And that language, he descended to hell, comes right out of that 1611 KJV. That wording is that ancient wording. And what they're saying is he descended to Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. Mm -hmm. So the version that we're using is the Church of England version. Yeah, the Anglican Church. Very easy to understand, mm -hmm. very straightforward. And you know, as we were preparing for this, we even asked ourselves, should we maybe do our own cornerstone adaptation of the creed? Should we change it to just his yeah. holy church? So let's talk about why we resisted that urge. Okay. We resisted that urge because we do want to remind our cornerstone family we are not just rugged individualists out here on an island by ourselves, and it's us against the world. Right. That's not true. We are connected to 2,000 years of Christians who've gone before us, yeah. and they may have said things slightly different than you would say them, yeah. but there's nothing wrong with you saying them the way they would say them. Right. And so we thought, you know, this is 
for continuity's sake, the whole point you would have studied the Apostles' Creed is to be connected to the past. Right. Why break the connection and say, let's make our rogue let's, version? Yeah, let's modernize it as though we couldn't continue to hold steadfast to the truths as they've been said throughout generations. And to do so, in our opinions, ultimately, when we analyze this, our consensus was to radically modernize or reword the creed would diminish the words of the church fathers. Yeah. Because these words have stood the test of time for 2,000 years. Yeah. If you think, hey, I'm going to wake up here in post-COVID America and the modern world, and let me just rewrite this thing. There's just something about that that doesn't feel right. right. And it's not right. And again, uh, it's antithetical to the whole reason why exactly, we're doing this series. Exactly. We wanted to show the Cornerstone people that in this age of you can create your own God and write your own Bible and create your own church and create your own cult and whatever, that's not what God had intended for us. We are anchored in a collection of truths. Yeah that are universal. Absolutely. Jesus only started one church. And as we dealt with in the Corinthians series, we had some discussions as we were podcasting Corinthians about division in the church and what we have in modern America with all these denominations. And we're really divided on a few things we disagree on mm -hmm. when we basically agree on most, things. on most things. Now, some of those things, I mean, you can disagree with someone on only one or two points, but they could be considerable points. Yeah, there's some rather consequential but most of our divisions are not. Mm -hmm. They're a little more petty, it feels like to me. And it may be where I'm living in this modern era, 2,000 years later in Christianity, that I'm scratching my head a little bit and wondering how some of these issues got so blown up that we can no longer be nice to a Pentecostal if you're Baptist. Right. Or you can no longer be civil with a Methodist if you're a Lutheran. Or you can no longer be civil to a Catholic if you're an Anglican. Mm -hmm. And to me, I don't think that's quite what Christ intended. No, uh, I would even say that it's the complete opposite. Correct. I think most of our New Testament is in the form of epistles that the thematic nature of all of them is get over your differences and unite around the yeah. gospel. Once we cross out of the book of Acts, it seems like most of the writings then are dealing with church problems on trying to reunify and not divide and don't fracture. Right. And let's get back to the essential truths that founded the church with Christ and the apostles. Exactly. And yeah. so this to us, for those who are curious about why, and I know some people are curious on why, we felt led to speak on certain topics. We've done some extensive series on how did we get the whole women's role in the church wrong, so badly wrong. Yeah. And why are we going to teach then about the Apostles' Creed? Isn't that a Catholic thing? No, it's not a Catholic thing. It's a Christian thing. Yeah, and just to speak to the point of the Apostles' Creed now, and this is something that you mentioned in both the first and second messages in this series, you talked about how Catholic doesn't necessarily mean Roman Catholic. No. Most of the definitions in any dictionary you go to will say, if capitalized, it means the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. But the word itself just means universal or broad in nature. A sentence using the word Catholic in its proper usage would be, hey, Sally has very Catholic tastes in music. She likes everything. Everything. Jazz <laughs> yeah. and Latin guitar and harpsichord and harpsichord. yeah I mean, just a little, a little very, guitar very you know? catholic in her taste very yeah. broad and universal the word is used much the way that we would use maybe the word eclectic mm -hmm. a very eclectic taste in music yeah i know you do you listen to a little country a lot of gospel a lot of praise and worship a little pop throw in some taylor swift here i mean you have eclectic All taste it, in yeah. music so we could say jeremy has catholic tastes in music 
Now, most of us are not accustomed to using the word in its proper connotation. However, we, the time of the origination of the Apostles' Creed, they would have totally understood correct. that saying, I believe in the Catholic Church. The is, one universal Church of Jesus yes, Christ. Exactly, exactly. That God's people should be a part of the church. This is his creation. Yeah. We are to be a part of it. It has a mission. It creates a community for us. Anyway, yes, that yeah. is correct. So, then so let's go over then to the other point that was a point of contention. You already kind of addressed this talking about the 1611 King James Version where it says he descended to hell, to Hades, Hades, right? The place of the dead. And in many of the modern versions of the Apostles' Creed, it still has that kind of wording. Right. The version that we're using says he descended to the dead. And it's a pretty easy explanation, but this is something that causes a lot of rifts right. in Christianity right. where some camps have this understanding that when Jesus died, he went down to hell, actually, right, right. versus just descended into death. Yeah, that kind of language. You've got several of the New Testament writings that you can draw that language from. Yeah. And First Peter, you have back-to-back -back chapters. I think it's three, and then again in four, where it talks about after Jesus died, he descended and he preached the gospel to those who were dead, and he preached to the spirits who were disobedient in prison. Yeah. And Ephesians, where Paul is writing that Jesus ascended on high, but before he ascended, he descended mm -hmm. into the lower parts of the earth and he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. So there is language in the Bible where the apostles are saying that three days where Jesus died on the cross, gave up the ghost and was dead as yeah. the apostles creed goes to great lengths to say, right. tortured under Pontius Pilate, died, was buried, descended. Yeah. Now, depending on what version you have, into hell or to Hades or to the dead, depending on what version you're dealing with, the point the Apostles' Creed's making, and we'll recap it again when we get there, is that he was dead. Yeah. This is not a mistake. He was dead. He's in a human it body. And a, died. It wasn't a comatose state. No, no. He didn't pass out, and then they put him in a cool tomb, and the cool stones revived him, right. and then somebody let him out. No, that's not what's happening. He was verified dead by professional killers, and, yeah. and two Supreme Court justices buried him. It's very documented and validated. So the reason we'll use the version we use, he descended to the dead and not he descended to hell because hell to a modern Christian means a place of burning flames. And so you'd have to explain, well, did Jesus go and suffer in hell or some purgatory state so that he could then do something? Let me say this another way. What's fascinating is that the apostles only give you little glimpses in their writing, as I just mentioned three of them. Mm -hmm. They only give little glimpses about what happened in that three days. Yeah. From the moment Jesus said, Father, in thy hands I commend my spirit is finished and gave up the ghost, until they see him alive again on Sunday morning in the garden, what happened in those what three happened? days? Now, that would yeah. make a fascinating discussion sure. about which we have very little information and yeah. only snippets. It's highly speculative. So the point is, the apostle said there were some specific things Jesus did in those three days. Yeah. He's moving around, obviously not in a physical body because it's in the tomb, mm -hmm. sealed, but in some other form. He yeah. is moving to the place of the dead and having conversations with people before he ascends as a resurrected human being on Sunday morning mm -hmm. to meet Mary Magdalene and then subsequently Peter and John and the apostles. So yeah. there's just some fascinating things embedded yeah. in this whole teaching. Exactly, and some things for people that are very unfamiliar with creeds and with creedal language. It's going to take us off guard. And that's okay to be taken off guard as long sure. as you then rearrange your so thoughts the, the in a way. So the series may feel like it's coming out of the blue to non-creedal people. 
So, yeah. and let's just talk about non-credal. The majority of our congregation come from Baptist roots, which is not to say that everyone is because we have a very eclectic group of people, Church Christ, Wesleyan, Roman Catholics, sure, yeah. but mostly Baptist, Evangelicals, Bible Church, Pentecostal, etc. And you put them all in a room together and they're not creedal people. The only people in the room that are creedal typically will be the three or four that grew up Roman Catholic. Right. And when I say Apostles Creed, I could just see certain faces in the room light up that first Sunday when we started the series. Because this is not unfamiliar to them. No. And if I start saying it, I could see their mouths moving. Mm -hmm. They knew some of the phrases from their childhood. Yeah. I saw some tears because it was nostalgic suddenly of connecting to the past, maybe with my mom and dad, mm -hmm. maybe who aren't with us anymore, yeah. being in church together and the Apostles Creed is there and we're saying it together. Right. Part of what we wanted to do, Jeremy, is we made some very strategic decisions a few years ago that the way the modern evangelicals were working in America just felt a little too free yeah. and unanchored from the faith of our fathers. Yeah, there is we, value in tradition. We correct. can't throw it away. It's a baby with the bathwater. Certainly, though, whether it's dress code or the music, whatever, we're certainly not a stuffy, uptight congregation. Right. I mean, the worship is modern and beautiful and enthusiastic, yeah. and the dress code is certainly relaxed, and the whole spirit in the room is free. Mm -hmm. People's hands are up, and they're clapping, and they're moving, and your body's engaged, and your voice is engaged. But there's something about being connected to the past that if you cut those anchor chains, Mm -hmm. and say, we don't want anything to do with the past. You've lost something valuable when yeah. you do that. And so we began to reintroduce our congregation to a more structure, more repetitive structure in our worship services, mm -hmm. where, let me give you some examples to our listeners, where for a whole three or four months in a row or more, we may end every service with the Lord's Prayer. And this is a good example. People may come to us and say, hey, why are we doing that? It feels a little old world Europe, a little more... And they might use the word Catholic or Presbyterian or Anglican to do some of the things you're doing. And the reason we're doing it is because we've discovered that it is through that repetition that we can get some things down into the hearts of the people, way down at a subconscious level, buried deep in your mind and heart, mm -hmm. that if we can get them in there, you will never lose them. Yeah. And in a moment of your darkest hour, when you're less like crying out to God or struggling for some hope or trying to talk to someone about faith. Yeah, then the Holy Spirit brings to your memory, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And it just flows out of you so naturally. Yeah. We altered the way we do the communion service. Yeah. And we took it a little more liturgical, yeah, a little responsive, responsive yeah. where the congregation doesn't just stand there and take the bread and the cup and the pastor does all the talking. The congregants are making their confessions. They're mm -hmm. saying, this is what we believe about the bread. This is what we believe about the cup. Hear us confess our sins together corporately. Right. Father, we have sinned before you and we're seeking your forgiveness. Well, because also just as a callback to our Zero Corinthians series, communion was never meant to be this deeply personal, super closed in an intimate moment. It was supposed to be a communal corporate moment. That is it. And so all together, it's important as a church body to know what it is that we are collectively confessing. Right. It's important because that's the whole point of communion is to, as a group and a body of believers join together and celebrate and remember the sacrifice of Christ. But it's a together thing. So I think all of that, we can just wrap a bow around that and say to our listeners, yes, we realize some of the things we're doing seem a little more old school Christianity, European yeah. Christian, and that's intentional, not accidental. And we don't have to be scared of it. No, you that's know, the whole point. My mom grew up, she's a Cuban immigrant. She grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. 
And for her, when she first went into a Baptist church after her salvation, it was very difficult for her because she was trying to get away from anything that seemed remotely capital C Catholic because it bothered her to think of the things that were kind of scarring from her experience in that church to be even remotely reflected in her present situation. Correct. And so now, actually, my mother goes to church at Cornerstone here with us, and it's a, it's a transition for her to have to reprogram to say, okay, there's, some of this is okay. Right. Some of this is healthy and good and right, even. We wouldn't agree with everything from Christian past in Europe. No. What we're saying, though, is it's not all bad either. And as Baptists, typically, we took all of that and said, if it looks even a remotely Roman Catholic, we're not going to do it. And that's not a healthy reaction. Not a healthy reaction. And we talked about this in the first service. Mary's one of the pivotal characters in the Bible. Certainly, Luke cannot write the book of Luke. Matthew cannot open the book of Matthew without Mary sitting down and talking them through what they need to write down. They look to her as their own mother, adoptive mother. Mm -hmm. She is the mother of the Messiah. And she was with them. John ultimately cared for her. We believe she moved in with him, if you want to say that. And he cared for her till her death. She was a mother to all of them. Mm-hmm. I don't mean in a biological way. I no, mean in a... A caretaker. Like, yeah, a mentor. Yeah. A disciple maker. They looked up to her and she had insights on who Jesus was that they needed to hear from her. Mm-hmm. And she was uniquely positioned to talk about, is he really God? Yeah. How did this happen? You actually spoke with an angel. Yeah. Joseph actually spoke with an angel. I can't believe your families didn't stone both of you. Surely no one believed your story. And how did that make you feel? And what pressures have you dealt with trying to be what God wanted you to be? She was absolutely pivotal to the Christian faith. And I'll use my tradition again. The Baptist won't even talk about her. I've never heard a sermon about Mary. No. The only time she's ever mentioned is in December for a Sunday, Mm -hmm. and that's it. And listen, that's a gross error on our part. There could be a whole series about people like Mary. She is a hero of the faith. A hundred percent. And to have overreacted and said, well... Now, we've insulted her. The the Roman Catholics really hold her in high esteem, so we are not going to. Sure. We we wouldn't agree with deification of her. Right. She is not, as they might say, co-mediatrix. There's one mediator between God, man, the man, Christ, Jesus. We get that. But the overreaction can be as heinous yeah. to say she's not even worthy of our discussion. And Mary never claimed to be a deity. No, that's a good example. We just go off on a tangent of things that we've overreacted to. Yeah. And now what we're asking our church to do is be mature enough that we can all admit some of the things in evangelical America mm-hmm. are just simply overreactions of our fathers trying to distance themselves yeah. from European. And it's not just Catholicism. It would be also Anglicanism or yeah. Presbyterians or the Lutherans, or we just want to really distance ourselves from that. And I don't think that's warranted. Right. Have you ever known someone who got into a deep genealogical study? finds out they're half Scottish and they never knew. So then they take a trip to Scotland and learn all about their history and their family. They learn all these things about who they are. It doesn't really affect or change necessarily how they're living now, but having a richer understanding of where they came from kind of altered the way that they look back at the sure. past. And I think that's kind of the journey that we're on here is just, we want to have a vivid and accurate understanding of where we came from. 
and understanding what the heroes of the faith before us believed and how they lived. And by knowing that, it helps direct our paths forward to know that we sure. are in alignment with our faith genealogy. And let's talk about this for a minute. The creeds aren't superfluous. I mean, it's not just, oh, we're just studying this long poem about God or something. It's not trivial. The creed has specific functions in Christianity. Yeah. We can make modern application to us. It's going to help us with discipleship mm-hmm. because you're to teach people your disciples, comma, what you believe. What you believe. And so the creed begins, I believe in God, the father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. The third section, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It is an, I believe catechism. It's an, I believe the Bible teaches this in about a hundred words. Yeah. So it's very valuable to us as a disciple making church for our disciples to be able to articulate what they believe. It's been used as a catechism tool for that. It's been used as, you might say, a sacrament tool. The ancient Apostles' Creed and the old Roman Creed, which they read similarly, they were used as baptism creeds. In other words, the candidate was asked, do you believe? Yes. What do you believe? Do you I believe, believe in God, the father, yeah. creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. It's yeah. like that. And again, without getting too Catholic, it was a confirmation of sorts. Well, yeah, yeah listen. It's it confirmed to me that sure. you believe. Well, I can confirm it to you by reciting what I believe. This is what I believe. Yeah. And see, we, I don't want to say have cheapened baptism, but that feels much more substantial than going into the baptismal waters with someone you barely know mm-hmm. who's made a profession of faith in Christ, which can mean a lot of things mm-hmm. and saying, brother, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. And baptize in the name of the father, son, and the Holy ghost. It just feels a whole lot more robust for that candidate to be able to say, brother, we're going to baptize you today. Why don't you tell the congregation what you believe? Yeah, I believe in God, the father almighty. And they rip off 107 yeah. words yeah. about a Trinitarian belief in almighty God, where we came from, how we got saved. And this is how I should live now that I am a believer. That feels very robust to me. Absolutely. And it's a beautiful picture of the way that our hearts are transformed with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. One of the things the creed does, we've talked about here in the last two weeks, is it ties us to the past. But more than that, it authenticates that what we believe is not a modern made up belief, that it is actually the authentic faith. that Jesus passed to his apostles. Yeah, actually, you know, you use an analogy when we're training people about discipleship and talking about being aligned with Christ's original model of discipleship. You use an analogy of you and your woodworking shop. I think that applies here. Actually, can you just go ahead and tell us that? You know, when you're mass producing, Susan came to me one year and said, I want you to build 10 of these. And it was a picture frame that had a marker board inside. And so I'm going to be making a lot of repetitive cuts, many boards of the exact same length. I need 20 boards that are two foot long, let's say. Once you pull the tape measure on the first board, make the mark and cut it, you remeasure it, it's exactly two feet. Yeah. If you use the board instead of the tape measure and lay the board down, make a mark, make another mark. If you mark a 10 foot board five times Mm -hmm. and then push it into the saw and start making your cuts, by the time you assemble that, it won't fit. Yeah. Because you can't mass produce it without using the tape measure every time. The tape measure is the thing that doesn't lie. It's always accurate. It will always be two feet. Whereas whether you're making something for a children's program or for a classroom, public school teachers have to sometimes cut out things repetitively. You make 50 of something, the pattern begins to creep. It does. Yeah. And so Christianity has been around 2000 years. You can have a whole lot of pattern creep in 2000 years to where we're now could be doing things and we don't even know why we're doing them. Mm Mm-hmm. But we think we're doing them in the name of 
Jesus told us to. Because it's what we did 15 minutes ago. But it's what they did 30 minutes ago. It's what they did 10 years ago. It's what they did 50 years ago. And all of a sudden, it doesn't look the same. Right. It's slightly moved over time to where it's now maybe wouldn't be recognizable by the original apostles, the original Christians. Yeah. And what a horrifying thought. Yeah. You None know, of us want to make up our own version of God or faith or salvation. We're right. horrified by that. Right. What would Paul's reaction be? Correct. To seeing the modern American church. Would, you, you he, would, would, he, would he even recognize it? You would like the apostles to be able to walk into Cornerstone on a Sunday. Of course, the dress codes would be sure. different and the music style would be different. But you want them to walk in and hear the words of the songs and say, gosh, these words are great. Mm-hmm. These are like the words we used to sing back in the day. Yeah. You want them to hear the gospel being preached and to be able to sit there and say, yes, amen to that. That's the exact same message we preached. For example, that little creed Paul put in first Corinthians 15, Mm -hmm. here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. According to the scripture, he was buried. He rose again the third day and he was seen. Yeah. And so it's a little mini creed stuck right there in first Corinthians that they obviously used in church. Right. Can you imagine this here? Let's role play. So now, uh, you know, welcome to Cornerstone this morning. Let's all stand together and say the apostles creed. Peter and Paul and John are here this morning. They'll lead us. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Now, they didn't write it, obviously. It was their disciples that wrote mm-hmm. it. But okay, let's role play a different way. The church fathers are here this morning. Yeah. The people who literally laid down their lives in the Colosseum and under the headsman's axe and all of these things you read about, the martyrs went through. Here are our father. Well, let me put it another way. Let's imagine we're all standing around the throne of God. Wow. And somebody jumps up and says, hey, let's just worship for a minute and let's do something we used to do back on planet Earth. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? I'm just role playing, fantasy playing here. But I believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Come on, everybody. I believe in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the Baptists standing there with their hands in their pockets, looking at their shoes? Yeah, like we have no idea what what the rest of you are doing right now. What are you guys saying? And so we want to be sure we're tied to the faith of our fathers. Mm -hmm. The other thing we talked about, Jeremy, when we talk about authenticity or being able to authenticate. I mean, literally, how do we know? How do we know that what we're teaching and preaching and practicing is the authentic faith that Jesus passed to the apostles? The Greek word for creed is symbolon. We talked about this last week. Symbolon was an image. It was a symbol. And you would either have two parts of one symbol or two symbols that matched identically. And the symbolon was used as a tool of authentication. And I can lay mine down next to yours and they match Mm -hmm. and mine is authenticated because we all know there's the original. Yeah. And so the apostles symbol on the apostles creed, here is what the apostles believe. Let's lay our beliefs down next to theirs and let's see if they match and they better. Yeah. They should. And we want our church to have that confidence that they do. We are preaching the original message that Jesus preached to his apostles. And there are some real implications to having a creed and believing it. So if you hold the creed in such high regard that it's integral to your speech and to the things that you say, the way that you live, it should have major repercussions in life transformation. One of the things we talked about in that first sermon is what you believe affects how you live. Yeah. That the world has it backwards. The world is saying, decide what your identity is, and that'll dictate your beliefs. Mm -hmm. So plug in your identity here. Okay. A person who is white should believe this. A person who is black, a person who is transgender should believe that. A person who is whatever should believe this. A person who's a Democrat believes this. Mm -hmm. A person who's a Republican believes this. 
Yeah. So the world's working kind of, we would say backwards. They're saying, what's your identity? Oh, then you believe this. And this is what's happening with our children right now in junior high and high school, especially the world is talking to them about identity. Yeah. And as a result of it, our kids are questioning then what they believe because they know that if you identify this, then you believe X. Yeah. Well, and just taking that a step back, just think generational creep now. So my generation, I'm a solid millennial, right? I'm 31 years old. I was raised and everyone around me was raised to be whatever I wanted to be. That was preached to me. It was just the thing that was the most prominent statement to children in my upbringing was be whatever you want to be. You can be anything you want. And now it's taken to the extreme to where now it's not just be what you want, but rather whatever you want is what you are. And whatever that is now, it's almost like we have, oh, you're this. Well, let's go over here to the shelf and pull off what the beliefs are for that type of person. Right. As if there's not nuance. Let's take even occupational identity, because that's not quite as controversial as a lot of other directions that this sure. conversation can go. Let's say we have a professor in college. A lot of times when you ask someone, what do you do? That's the first question. What do you do? I'm a professor. And then you have this whole mm. understanding of- So you're a man of science, so you believe in evolution. Right. So you got that. That's a supposed belief on a professor. Who knows? Maybe I'm a professor at a Christian college, and I have a completely different set of beliefs. Or right. maybe I'm a Christian at a liberal arts college. Maybe I have a whole different set of beliefs. But it's really easy to jump to a supposition of what a belief structure Correct. is based Correct. upon the identity of the person you're talking to. So we're saying reverse it all. Reverse that the, it. That the Bible begins with the understanding that you need to believe something. And when you determine what you believe. Then let that dictate then. How you, you identify. That is correct. Absolutely. Because if I believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth, if I believe all of the items of the creed, then that should change the way that I identify as a person. And it doesn't really matter occupationally or even socially, culturally. It doesn't really matter where I fit into those brackets if I'm living out of a pure identity in Christ. Because the way that I operate in any other occupational way is going to be reflective of my belief in Christ. That's correct. Another way we might say that, I think when we talk to the teenagers and maybe the college students, we use the biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. And... It's another way of saying that once you believe yeah. in God, once you believe in Jesus Christ, once you believe God is the creator of heaven and earth and Jesus Christ is his son and the Holy Spirit indwells us, what we're saying is then you've put on a set of lenses. Yeah. And gospel colored lenses. And you look through those biblical lenses exactly. now at life and the decisions you make and how you live your life are going to be determined by what you believe. Now. Right. And that is the biblical model for how we want to play this out among our congregants. We want to focus on beliefs. Let the beliefs dictate the way correct. that you live. That is as correct. opposed to letting the way that you live dictate your beliefs. That is absolutely correct. And we illustrated that in the first sermon by contrasting Pharaoh and Abraham, who had radically different, obviously, belief systems. And so they had radically different behaviors. Yeah. Obviously, Abraham's not perfect, but he had a belief in God that dictated how he lived. Pharaoh did not. He believed in really the core world values, which are wealth and self and control. What a beautiful line. I saw that all over social media after he talked about yeah. it. Just this idea that you're destined to live in fear if you believe in self, wealth, and control as the guiding forces. Yeah, be because it. if you follow the world's philosophy and say that my whole life is about that, it's about living a life of pleasure. It's about me 
It's about gaining wealth. Yeah. It's about me just controlling my environment so nothing bad happens or everything's pleasant. The reason people live lives filled with fear is because you live that way and you realize very quickly you're not in control. You're not the almighty yeah. and wealth can leave and you're not in control and circumstances. I guess COVID was a great example of circumstances can spin out of your control and cause great upheaval in your life right. if that's what your life is all about. But if your life is anchored in faith in God, you you even approach a pandemic differently. Absolutely. You're like, oh, this is terrible, but God's in control and he's going to see us through this. So the first message was really about that contrast between let's decide what we believe and then we'll figure out how we live out our lives. And then we transitioned really in the second sermon to this phrase, I believe in God, the father. Yeah. And we talked about father and we talked about almighty God almighty. So Let's just talk for a minute about Almighty and Father. Let's deal with Father first because I brought up a few controversial things related to our understanding of God the Father on Sunday, just not to be provocative, but the people who, again, grew up in church versus the people who came to faith in Christ later in life view that statement very differently. People who had a wonderful Christian father versus people who had a terrible, abusive father view that statement father very differently. And the women and the men view that statement very differently. And this again is one of those things. I don't know that in all of my upbringing in church, I ever heard a sermon on God, the father Mm -hmm. in the sense we talked about it Sunday. And the questions that we raised Sunday is, does the masculine language give preference to the males over the females? Is the Bible teaching us that there is gender in God. And to make it more simple, are we to think that God is male, like the way that you you and I are male in our earthly bodies? And is that what the Bible's teaching? And I think I could really see the wheels spinning on Sunday when we got to this point in the message that the Bible says we're to call God Father. What Jesus said, you call God Father, because that's what I call him. Yeah. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed is thy name. Jesus invited us to stand right beside him and call his father what he called him because we were in Christ mm-hmm. and therefore he invited us into that very same relationship as God's children. But the bigger question is, okay, God the Father, is he not male? And that really, I think, made our heads explode a little bit a on little Sunday. Bit, yeah. Just a little minor explosion because maybe no one's ever confronted you with this language before. God is not male in the sense that we are male. The Bible's very clear. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And when the Bible says God the Father, it's using father and son as relational terms so that human beings can gain some understanding of a holy almighty God that is terrifying, which I pointed out Sunday from the book of Exodus. He is all powerful. And when exposed to the almightiness of God, it would be terrifying if you didn't consider he loved you. And you were his child. I don't know, maybe as a child, everybody thought of their father as loving and kind. And maybe in a moment you got to see him as strong and able to defend you in some way. And you saw a different side of him. You're like, oh, dad could be scary too if he wanted to be. But thank goodness he loves me and I'm his child and he cares for me. And I think when the Bible's using father, this is the language it's communicating to us. Not that God is a male. You women are something else over here. Get in line behind the men because God prefers men. He's obviously male and uh, they have superiority in his hierarchical order as many churches teach that there's this hierarchy and just for clarification not what we teach not what we teach at all (laughs) no not what we teach at all we teach that the man and the woman were both made in the image of god and they were equal in creation but what we're saying here is that we should not think of god as male physically 
again, to circle back to more Greek Roman mythology and paganism, where there's male gods and female gods who cavort together and create demigods through Mm -hmm. procreation and sexual acts bring forth other species and beings that is paganism that is not what the scripture is teaching we're talking about an eternal god who is a spirit he is not male in that sense again i pointed out the language and there's many illustrations in the bible where god is referred to with feminine articles or verbs or nouns or whatever you know or even metaphors correct again the the nursing mother we talked about sunday or this is even the language we use here at cornerstone of discipleship all the time. As a nursing mother, I took care of you like a protective mother would do their children. And that really was the favorite sermon illustration of the early church fathers to speak of God as mama bear. We use that language, you know, this maternal nourishment, protection, and care. God loves us in this way. Obviously the language is father. It is masculine throughout our Bible, but we're not to think of God as male in that bodily sense. That is not what the scripture is teaching. Yeah, I have to go to a whole nother segment of your sermon from last Sunday, because this was a big shock to me, and I think it was for you too, even in study. And that's about the most quoted statement in the Bible by other Bible writers. So when you said that, you said, hey, I I dare you to guess. What actually in the office, in the weeks before, as you were preparing the sermon, you said, hey, Jeremy, what do you think the most quoted Bible verse in the Bible is? And in my head, I'm going, maybe love the Lord your God or have no gods before me, or something along those lines. But no, it's actually in Exodus 34, verses six through seven. Let me read it. And this was a real surprise to me. It says this, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents in the third and fourth generation. Yeah, I think a lot of people were shocked by those. Again, there's no verses in the original. There are phrases, there are sentences. And we use the verse numbers just to help us all get to the same place together. And I think the point that I was trying to make by going here on Sunday is I believe in God the Father Almighty. Yeah. So we're trying to lay the apostles symbol on down the apostles creed down and see if our language matches their language. And today I really sense that there are a lot of people who don't really get God. They get that God is loving and kind and merciful and gracious, but they somehow have never been taught or they have dismissed the other teaching in the Bible that God will judge sin. He is judgment against sin because of his holiness and his righteousness. And so God is not this or that. We taught Sunday, he is both and. He is both loving and kind, compassion, and he is a God of judgment against sin. And that is not our description of God. That is literally God's own words to Moses. Moses like, I want to know you more. And God says, well, hold on. Here yeah, we oh, go. You, you want to know about me? Let, Let me yeah, tell you about yeah, myself. Yahweh, Yahweh. Yeah. And he starts describing himself to Moses. Listen, we should really pay attention when God's describing himself. And, and I guess my point is this. The Bible writers did. Yeah. So when they wanted to elaborate on who God is, they all run right back to Exodus where Moses has recorded these words from God on Mount Sinai. God is this. And so they all then retweet it all throughout the Bible. They all pick up on that theme and then reapply it in their own day and their own age. Some of them 1500 years later, the New Testament's being written. And the writers of the Bible are taking that knowledge of God and saying, this is who God is. 
let's make sure we keep that identity pristine. Yeah. Because to change who God is, is to create this idol, which was illustrated right there at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, when he gave him the Ten Commandments, said, but you should have no other gods before me. And immediately Moses goes back up the mountain and they make a God before God. And again, I pointed out Sunday, we've maybe misunderstood the golden calf moment. Mm-hmm. They made an idol. And so God's ticked off about that. No, it's way worse than that. Yeah. They made an idol five minutes after he told them not to, and then said, we will bow down before it in a holy feast unto the Lord. No, wait, it's worse than that. We will bow down before a holy feast of the Lord and we'll all get drunk and turn it into maybe some making out and necking or maybe it transitions <laughs> to an orgy. No, let's go further than that. We will have a holy day. Let's just call the idol Yahweh of the Lord. Wow. Oh, God's furious by Exodus 34. Yeah. When Moses meets with him, it's just like Moses stand aside. Okay, listen, I can just wipe all these people out in a minute and we'll just start over yeah. because this is ridiculous. I've literally liberated them from slavery, brought them to Sinai, and immediately they have done the thing that is really my hottest of hot buttons. Right. They have bowed down and called a golden statue Yahweh of a cow, no doubt. A cow. A cow. Yeah. And I am the Lord God Almighty. I'm not a cow. Right. Five minutes ago, I went down to talk to them. And when I talked like to them. Like you guys were all on board. Yeah. And my almightiness what was happened? so almighty that it terrified everybody, yeah. even though I'm a big teddy bear. In <laughs> some ways, you know what I'm saying? You're my people. Yeah. I love you and protect you. Yeah. But let me tell you, I am also. But I am almighty. Yeah. And so God is both and. And I think if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard those first two messages, you've got to listen to them. They're at cbc.family slash media. You can pull up the playlist of the Apostles Creed. It has both of those sermons that you've already done in there and we'll populate it with all the upcoming series. Sure. As we continue. That would really build the foundation because it's why are we doing this? Why the creed? And then who is God? What do I believe in? And we dealt with God, the Father Almighty. This Sunday, a little teaser here, we're going to deal with creator of heaven and earth. Yeah. And maybe some real challenging also thoughts in this about what do you think about heaven and its relationship to earth? I would assume that most people who would be in church on Sunday are people who believe that God is the creator. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's that heaven and earth piece. And what is that relationship between heaven and earth? And what is the Bible trying to tell us? Is heaven far, far away from earth? Can I Google map that? Is it like a (laughs) geographic place I can drop a pin? Or is it a dimension? Or we're going to deal with all all that. All good questions. All stuff we'll deal with on Sunday. You know, as you're talking through God and his judgment, as they creep away from their understanding of who he really is, all the way to viewing a completely inanimate object as being worthy of these are your gods to israel i have to then just imagine his frustration with the church of creeping away from what the church should be and creeping away from the beliefs in jesus as he displayed himself and in practicality in the way that we live our lives and that's the exact reason why we want to study the creed that's it we want to study the creed because we don't want to be in opposition to god as he's defined himself sure will you oversee the discipleship ministry and you're teaching our disciples to pass their faith from model generation their faith, to generation pass the faith to your disciples how do we know what we're passing is authentic yeah man we've got to get that right that's a lot of responsibility to mislead people it you is. know at the same time i think people make it a much more difficult thing than it needs to be yeah. i think you ask someone hey tell me your faith and they get immediately overwhelmed 
Right. And they say, I don't know how to articulate my faith. I can't pass it on to future disciples. I don't know how to spread generational understanding of the word. And they freak out by it. And I think that a great and incredible remedy to that is understanding a creed. You and Erica lead the Tell Your Story workshop. That's what we call it. And it's a moment in discipleship when people get to a certain place and we're talking to them about sharing their faith. And yeah. they're, again, to use your words, they're freaked out about, I'm going to try to lead somebody to Christ and articulate the plan of salvation. And, yeah. you know, it's overwhelming and the breakers begin to flip. And you guys take them through a process in just a Saturday workshop yeah. where very simply you teach them how to tell God's story and their story in a way that's conversational and coherent and non stressful right. and effective. Yeah. Okay. And because you have thought it through and practiced it now you're comfortable it's not scary yeah it's not scary if somebody said i've been thinking about some of the things you told me i'm not ready to put my faith in christ and you can just pick that up and go with it mm -hmm. okay well as you articulated the very reason we're studying the apostles creed so that in days to come when you're talking to your kids or they're talking to their peers or you're talking to a neighbor what do you believe about that here's something we learned at church recently yeah. boom it yeah. could just come right out yeah because what good is belief if it can't be articulated that's correct and it's that, all internalized. And that's and exactly not, what we're doing here. We're learning yeah. how to articulate what we've internalized as belief. Sure. And that's why the creeds are important. Listen, I'm so excited to continue this series. It's already been such a challenge and a motivating thing for me as I've been in my own study, learning about what we believe in the creed and then being able to talk about it and being able to dictate it in the form of the Apostles' Creed. I'm so excited to continue learning with my church family, but also excited to continue learning with our listeners. So as you listen and as you learn, as you study, and as you let some of these words really permeate your thoughts throughout the week, we'd love to hear what those thoughts are and get your reflections and feedback. So if you would text us at 817-809-3040, we would love to hear from you and we would love for you to be a part of these ongoing Cornerstone Conversations.